Lady Wonder the Talking Horse. <laughs> yes, I love, had, yeah. Uh, because that is a remarkable story. It went national. Right. And uh, I, as a boy, lived around the corner from there. A little tiny, I was very young. And so uh, my mother or my father took me around to the corner and we went to see Lady Wonder. And... And uh, she and, and see she, where, and we, where was and, uh, where somebody was asked her questions and she chopped them out. Yeah. <laughs> and see, yeah, see, where was this? Where this is? If I'm correct, if you if you do good research, <coughs> you I think you'll find it as the street that uh, is near Bell Island and Petersburg Pike. Mm-hmm. Uh, Petersburg Pike is a what we call. Jeff Davis Highway, although on the market says it's always said Jeff Davis. Well, it's a great story, and uh, uh, people don't know about it, but it's it's, it's also very humorous. Of course, it's, it talks is a wonder. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. This is episode 44. I hope you are having a fantastic day. This episode, I have Ed Peoples on the show. I uh, want to thank Patricia for recommending Ed Peoples. It was a quite a while ago, but I finally tracked him down and got it going. If you know somebody that should be a guest on this show... Suggest a guest like Patricia did. Uh, let me know who, who you think it is. You can email me, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R at historyreplaystoday.org. You can just post a comment at historyreplaystoday.org or Facebook, Twitter, at historyreplays. Uh, Ed is an, an, an emeritus professor of VCU. Uh, he is a, a human rights activist, uh, and he is the author of Scallywag. A White Southerner's Journey Through Segregation and Human Rights Activism. Really great book. Uh, check it out if you've never if you've never read it. Uh, you can get it at uh, you know the Book People or any local bookstore or Amazon or or, or wherever wherever you might want to get it. Uh, this is a very honest discussion on race and and Ed's transformation from a young boy growing up in the racist. Segregation, segregated South, um, and to becoming an activist for equality and justice. Uh, he grew up off Bainbridge Street on the South Side when you know Old Manchester and Hull Street were still a bumping town center. So he talks a little bit about that. Uh, he played basketball at VCU, right? He was one of the one of the early Rams, well before Havoc was even a thing. Um, he even does a you know an impression of. Dr. Henry Hibbs, <laughs> how about that? Uh, a lot of people don't even know who that is. Um, we get into that. Uh, uh, you know, after Barbara Johns uh, led a student strike in Prince Edward County, uh, which led to the closure of, of all public schools, uh, black and white, um, he picked up and, and went to Prince Edward to see what he could do to help out. Um, really didn't know what was going on. We you know, just went to go see what he could do. Uh, he's also a pioneering professor at VCU. Uh, we get into all that, uh, but this is part one of this conversation. Um, so the part two will be posted on May 1st. 
Um, but in this section, uh, this episode, uh, we talk a lot about uh, Ed's early life, um, his conversion from a racist to an activist, uh, and and the desegregation of, of some of the of some of Richmond's eateries, um, among other really interesting, fa- fascinating things. I mean, wealth of information. Um, but for more, more information on Ed Peoples, if you're not really sure who he is, you can check out his website, Ed peoples.com that's e d p e e p l e s.com holy smokes i'm not sure how many e's i put in there e d p e e p l e s.com one more time since i think i messed it up the first time e d p e e p l e s.com uh, you can find out all kinds of uh, information about the book, uh, about Ed himself. Uh, you can check out some of his upcoming events. Uh, for example, April 23rd at 6 o'clock, he'll be reading and signing books at Chop Suey Books in Carytown. And on April 24th, he'll be speaking at the Robert Rusa Moton Museum in Farmville, Virginia. Uh, if you can't get to Farmville or you just maybe you just don't want to even leave the house, you can also live stream it. That event will be live uh, a live stream. Um, you can find the link to that uh, and all of the other all of these other events at, at edpeoples.com. We'll go one more time: e d p e e p l e s dot com. Uh, but I sat down with Ed in his condo on the north side. Uh, it was a beautiful day. You can actually hear some of the wind chimes in the background. While I was still trying to get some of the sound right, uh, just trying to get my computer ready, he brought up something that, to me, is personally fascinating. Um, the the little bit that you heard at the top of the show, um, you could hear there's a lot of feedback. It broke up a lot. Uh, but Lady Wonder, the talking horse. Uh, if you've never heard of Lady Wonder, the talking horse, we, I'm going to actually play. Uh, ask them a little bit more about it. Um, I'm going to play that in just a second. Um, but if you know more about Lady Wonder, please let me know. I'm actually really interested. I love the idea uh, that grown adults believe that there was a horse that could talk and answer questions. Uh, you can contact me on Facebook, History Replays Today, on Twitter, at History Replays, or you can email me, Jeff Major, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R, at historyreplaystoday.org. So, yeah, and please, please send me that information. I, I'm actually really interested in it. But uh, uh, let's hear a little bit more about Lady Wonder. And, and so you remember going to see that as a kid. How did, how did you find out about it? Are we, are we recording now? Yeah. Well, uh, I was a very young child, and I lived around the corner. Uh, it was my second home. My first home was on Bainbridge Street in Southside, mm-hmm. and but I was born, um, I was born uh, virtually on the VCU campus, what is now campus. Mm-hmm. It was a hospital at, on Harrison and Grace, so I had, so I only had to walk up two blocks to go to college. Yeah. So anyway, the uh, uh, I lived down uh, what we thought of as. Stop nine and a half of the streetcar mm-hmm. okay. that went to Petersburg or close to, I think it went all the way to Petersburg. Mm-hmm. And and down that same road, the road name won't come to me, was uh, Lady Wonder the Talking Horse. Right. She was, uh, 
she was a, a source of pride locally, but I don't think many people knew about her beyond our borders. And uh, so my father, I believe it was my father, who took me around the corner and down the street and to this uh, barn-like place where a lady wanted the talking horse lived, and she was in a stall, and in front of her was a alphabet, uh, which was had uh, keys on, had sort of like keys, and all in a row, and uh, and people would ask her questions, and she would stomp out with her hoof on the keys, and. Uh, uh, I was not old enough to know of her veracity, but but but, uh, but uh, I was amazed at the interaction between adults and this horse, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was the ultimate experience in horsing around. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, I remembered it forever, uh, and then. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, other people came to know about it. And in fact, uh, there was a visitor from Massachusetts. I think, uh, what's his name at Richmond Magazine? Uh, the kind of history guy. Harry Collatz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He knows about it. He, he knows yeah, who, I, who I've actually had. He was the, the, he, the first episode of the podcast with yeah. Harry Collatz. Oh, he was. Yeah. Well, that was a good one. Yeah. Because he... He's an expert on Richmond, Richmond Day. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, and he knows about the horse. I know he's done some things. And, and uh, so it, it's uh, it came to the attention. Uh, the problem with me now is I'm too old to remember all the names <laughs> of people. But, That's all right. But it, it, it made national news once when uh, um, a news guy who ended up on pub, uh, hosting the Friday Night Public Television News Discussion Group. Um, he was he was originally from Richmond. He covered it, and uh, somebody at uh, somebody asked him a question. I think in the eighties or nineties about it about Lady One, and he he uh, raised the story again. And uh, he had covered it as a young cub reporter in Richmond. He was in radio or. You know, a lot of them started here. Roger Mudd started here, sure. and, and many, many others. Um, and uh, so, uh, and also, there was uh, another account of it that, let me see if I can remember his name, the famous uh, Vernon Johns was a civil rights advocate. He, mm-hmm. he was the minister of the church in Alabama uh, that... And he was succeeded by Martin Luther King. Uh, Vernon who, John. Who's that? Martin Luther who? Martin Luther King. Oh, oh I've Jr. heard of him. I've heard of him. Yeah. Mark, yeah. yeah, heard of him. Uh-huh. yeah. Okay. Junior. Yeah. Junior, not senior. Okay, fair enough. And he became the minister because Vernon Johns was too radical for the congregation. Right. Now, Vernon Johns was from Prince Edward County. Mm-hmm. He was a farmer. But he became a clergyman, of course, and he, and uh, his niece, uh, Barbara Johns, is the great heroine of the strike that started the Brown decision in Prince Edward County. Surely you and some of your listeners will know 
of that story. If they don't, uh, um, I've written a book, and it's uh, the story. A little of the stories in there, but it's there's there are many books about it that are just intriguing. But Barbara Johns was uh, 16 years old. Anyway, Vernon Johns was too radical for, and so they fired him. Mm-hmm. And, but and uh, he was kind of uh, made people uncomfortable, black other blacks uncomfortable. I have friends who knew him uh, well, and they tell me that he was a bit arrogant and so forth. But uh, uh, it, it, you had to be arrogant in a segregated society, sure. otherwise you'd be trampled upon. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, so anyway, uh, I read a story in a little local uh, little booklet that was written by someone, uh, a friend of his from Prince Edward that uh, told of him going along with a friend to see Lady Wonder the talking horse. They were so dazzled by the prospect and they did, they wanted to check it out to make, Vernon Johns wanted to make sure that it was true and he thought surely it was a fraud. Uh And so, uh, so he went to see him and, and Vernon Johns also had a, a connection with Petersburg, so he lived there for a while. And uh, and so he went, and they tested the horse and went through the routine and decided that Lady Wanda, the talking horse, was truly a talking horse. <laughs> that's like, that's a fantastic thing. I love the idea of... Uh, um, uh, yeah. A civil rights hero uh, doing a, a, a test, testing the, right. the veracity <laughs> of a horse. Or frankly, any grown adult. How about that? <laughs> yeah. All right. Now that we've gotten the, the bit about Lady Wonder out, um, let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about Ed's life. Uh, just so you know, uh, this is, a very, again, a very frank conversation about race. Um it is completely within the context of, of history uh, and the conversation, but there are a couple in bombs in the conversation, so if you're super sensitive, just know that that exists. Um, but we started out the conversation when talking about when Ed was a kid. Uh, he grew up on the south side, um, right off Brainbridge Street, and let's hear Ed talk about it. But so, and I guess we can go to, you know, so you, you growing up off in Bainbridge, off Bainbridge School, what's that area like, you know, at that time? What was it like? Yeah. I mean, well, it was white dominated, I can, mm-hmm. and it was, uh, a lot of the kids were, and, and what, as I got what, older, a lot of the kids were ruthless. Sorry, what, what time period are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking about, I was born in 35. Okay. And so I started to be conscious of things by about, uh, you know, four or five. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I began to learn the rules of race even before that. Sure. And the rules of race uh, call for you to absolutely conform. It, right. It's what I would in Virginia. It was I would I'd call it a, a, a polite Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. but uh, but it was uh, very racist, and uh, blacks had to uh, defer. Uh, to the sidewalks, the uh, retail stores. Of course, they could eat nowhere, but, uh, and, and Hull Street was totally white dominated, and uh, blacks could hardly be 
uh, were hardly allowed to do much of anything. Occasionally, we go across the bridge, Ninth Street Bridge, to downtown. I've written a story about what it was like on Gray Street mm-hmm. and, and how it, there was. Uh, my, I think my story is called "Our Streets and Their Streets," mm-hmm. and uh, it's Grace versus Marshall, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, so Holt uh, Street was pretty much a prosperous downtown. We kind of saw ourselves as a separate city, uh, kind of a lingering memory of Manchester. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But clearly it was part of Richmond, governance and all the rest. There well, were blacks recently, there, huh? right? I mean, it, that, at that point, it's somewhat recent that that's actually within Richmond. I'm trying to think of when that was, but... Uh, well, around World War One. Yeah, so we, it was we, like... It became part of Richmond, right. I think it was. I don't have the date, but... But did, it, it was but that. See, so in thir- in 1940s, the pe- there was still a lot of people alive who who knew knew it as a separate town. Right, and I mean, but there was still a you know what Hull Street now the, the shell of a of a street now. I mean, oh that yeah, was, that was still like jumping at that point. Right? Oh or, my or god, it yeah, yeah. There. It had a it had a big department store. It had a. A main post office there. Mm-hmm. The, the the buildings are still there. They use for other things. Now there's uh, storefronts and you know that are boarded up and everything. There was a, a notable hardware store. There was uh, a people's drugstore in the corner of Corden and and up the street was uh, uh, up west. Uh, was uh, uh, a seed and feed company that I went used to go get my feed for my rabbits. I raised mm-hmm. rabbits. Of oh, course, cool. yeah. uh, I raised rabbits for the pelts and the meat, and mm-hmm. sold it to people. I was just a boy, but I and mm-hmm. I built rabbit hutches for them. By that time, I lived on Twenty Eighth Street. Yeah. Uh, so I lived over there. I grew up uh, over there till I was about just about fourteen, and I, my mother was trying to get me out of the. Out of the uh, out of the mix of those thugs that were there. Right. Uh, these are kids that come white kids who came from families who uh, didn't care. They didn't watch. They didn't watch the kids, and they weren't interested in education or anything. My mother, although she only went to the eighth grade, she uh, had ambitions for me and my brother, mm-hmm. and so she she moved. She got a job on Broken Park Boulevard as as a hairdresser. And uh, so we moved over up here on Brook Road. Okay. And later on, I became a, uh, well, I had been a paper boy. Right. Well, uh, well, well, before we go past that, this is actually something I really wanted to ask you about. You say thugs, but in the book you talk about actually going to the black neighborhoods and shooting at them. With yeah, we'd ride, we would ride through uh, Bainbridge Street, had a dip before you get to Coordon if you were coming east. Uh-huh. Or toward the city, you know. Uh, Southside's crazy because the streets are called east and west, but they feel like they're north and south, you know. Right, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, the, the numbered street. It's it's really odd. But I guess if you see a map, it's correct. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yes, we ride down that. That was a particular one. Pickleton, Pinkleton, uh Pickington, uh, I can't ever remember the right syllable, it, is at the bottom of this dip. And uh, on one side was a row of houses 
sort of dilapidated and um, and blacks used to be out there on Saturday mornings sitting on the porch when it was hot and, and we'd ride down on our bicycles and, and uh, some of us had BB guns, some had 22 rifles, some had sticks and stones and and uh, and uh, we just sail assail them and I didn't know any different, I never sure. heard to me all I'd ever heard is they, they're something akin to animals, you know. But we would know individual, and my mother would love them, have great affection for them. So there was this incredible schizophrenic view of blacks in which uh, if you knew an individual, you could, you kind of, uh, for the moment you were with them, you could treat them just like anybody else. Right, but when you saw them as an abstract, they they were uh, they were another species. Sure, and so that was the irony of it all. That uh, and that's why some Southern whites say we love black people. They they meant that they love their maid. Right, and and who because who who followed all the rules? She put her dishes under the sink and mm-hmm. and didn't buy and. Nothing was ever, uh, and uh, the boys, if, uh, the men were working a, uh, uh, when they had the water bucket come around, the white men would get to drink first, mm-hmm. and then the blacks could drink uh, afterwards, and uh, things like that. Uh, and that prevailed, there was an urban and a rural version of, of these things, and uh, so... Uh, we did contemptible things. I'm uh, totally ashamed of what I was mm-hmm. until I was 18, mm-hmm. when I discovered the first person that ever challenged segregation, white supremacy. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, yes, Hull Street and uh, and uh, uh, and now uh, uh, if you got, kept going up Hull Street past 26th Street. Uh, at where Midlothian Turnpike begins mm-hmm. at 26 and Hall. Uh, it was still very active. And you kept on going. You got to the Belt Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became, just beyond that, it became rural. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, nothing like Cloverleaf Mall didn't exist. Sure. And nothing, nothing was out there but farms and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, I did make forages out there. Uh, in the middle of the night on my bicycle with a big basket because we found uh, a hot house at some guy's house out in the rural area there. It was a long ride for me, but uh, we found that he had bicycle parts in this place and we, uh, another guy and I, Smitty we called him, he lived down on... uh, Sims Avenue, and we, we, uh, I had a bicycle. I, I did bicycles. I stole bicycles and uh, uh, burned the paint off, filed down the serial number under the, <laughs> under the housing for the, for the uh, crank. Sure. And, uh, and then would paint them and fix them up and, and sell them. Right. And also sold rabbits, and I also rented, rented books. I, Accumulated under my porch. I had a lending library for, <laughs> and uh, I was a little bit of an entrepreneur. I like that. And and 
so uh, I made a little bit of money because my mother couldn't make money by my time. By this time, my father was an alcoholic, and mm-hmm. and he couldn't work most of the time. And uh, so, uh, so I, I found these party auto parts in this hot house. So every once in a while, I had to ride out there with with Smitty, and he, and we load up on bicycle parts in that big basket I had. I had a a big fat tire thing, and boy, we rode. I got out. My mother didn't even know I left the house. It may have been two in the morning. We wanted to make sure that he was asleep. Right. So we'd go in. It wasn't locked, and he we'd go in and we'd stoke up on these um, parts, and I'd come back and. Uh, you know, I, I, I cashed in on him. I had a, a, I had a little shop under my porch. Uh, it was cold in the winter, but I still worked in it. And uh, all by hand tools, you mm-hmm. know. And so uh, we would, I would, uh, in, in the alley there, I would uh, make a fire in the alley. And okay. then put the, strip down the bike to its frame. Mm-hmm. And it burned turn the thing over and fry it on another side until I got all the paint off. Wow. And then I sand it down and clean it up. And I put all those new body par- uh, bike parts on there. And uh, man alive, it would sparkle. Right. And that's a, um, that's not a thug. That's ingenuity. That's like, that's a Well, it's way. also crime. It, well, it is. But, <laughs> but I didn't know. I, I, I had a theory those days that was kind of... Uh, stay even economic theory political economic theory it it was at first it was very selfish but i grew to think of it as a a rational scheme and it 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 carried me through even to college when i went to rpi the forerunner of vcu where i I applied it in basketball right (laughs) sure and uh well and that's uh i guess it kind of goes in the whole thing, right? You're, the human brain is is really good at making itself believe whatever it wants to believe, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, the cognitive dissonance reduction is called. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, it doesn't matter what facts are in front of you. If you want to believe it, you can believe it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Especially if it's in your self interest. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If, if you uh, now I was get, I was getting a little profit out of this, so mm-hmm. it was justified. Right. Sure. Same way when I played basketball, mm-hmm. I. I would do anything to disadvantage the opposition. Sure. And, uh, I, there's another story I wrote about us playing for RPI at uh, at VMI. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll I'll uh, wait for it to publish the result of that. But it'll, <laughs> it'll make some people smile. All right, I like that. <laughs> um, and uh, the as a as a child, because um, you grew up moderately, you know, not dirt poor, but definitely not. Middle, like lower middle class is kind of well, the impression it, I got, it, right? People would call it working class. A working class. There okay. were people below us, but the interesting, the, the thing of it, the effective prejudice rate, you might call it, mm-hmm. uh, applied to us too. We were still called white trash right. by the middle classes. And uh, the stratification was there were desperately poor people, and mm-hmm. they included most blacks. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a black middle class and mm-hmm. professional class, we had never seen any of them. That was what I was going to ask. Never, was... never saw any, but we knew we knew black ministers who were, uh, 
were very poor and uh, would had a had some kind of uh, preaching setup, mm-hmm. but they 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 fit into that stereotype perfectly. Sure. But to know a doctor or or to know a teacher or anything, there was no access mm-hmm. for us to know. So we we believed everything that the newspaper said, we believed everything our parents said, everything our preacher said, mm-hmm. everything my Sunday school teacher said, mm-hmm. and everything our history t- history uh, uh, reported in the in the uh, in in elementary school. In fact, uh, Virginia used to use up until the seventies a, a book called. Cavalier Commonwealth. Maybe you had it in high school. No, no, no. no, no. Cavalier Commonwealth was written by three people, and it was an apology for Virginia's, much of Virginia's history. Now, there were some accurate things in there. I mean, you can't avoid uh, uh, the date of 1607 or something. Sure. And you, you would know well, given your experience of having to go there all the time. Sure, right, right, right. Down. Uh, But uh, there was one passage in there that always stuck in my mind was that uh, when they were describing slavery they said uh, in the, that uh, that the um, uh, slavery wasn't so bad after all because people had only worked five days a week and on Saturday and Sunday they had Sunday off and they could uh, uh, have they had space to have their own garden and and uh, they were uh, they were given uh, clothing and free and and food free and their retirement was there you know uh yeah it was slavery and uh and uh very few people got beaten or anything it wasn't much uh but so it was a form of social security mm-hmm. sure and that was the passage he actually said and that was emblematic of what we knew mm-hmm. and that was the intelligentsia the Virginia intelligentsia telling us to how to justify sure. what what we were facing. Ours was more raw, mm-hmm. much more raw, and we didn't have time for history books. Sure, you know. sure. Um, and so I guess we got it. You, you know, you, you somewhat mentioned it, but you know, at, at eighteen is when you get your first, you know, real holy smokes. This is I went to RPI. Well, first of all, I had a. Uh, just when I turned 18, I, like many Southerners, by this time I lived in Jacksonville, Florida, mm-hmm. for a year because my mother left my father, and she he took she, she took us uh, to her home state, mm-hmm. and we settled down in Jacksonville because we could live with my aunt. All three of us slept in the same bed mm-hmm. in the one room for a while until she could get a job. Yeah, and. Uh, so I came back, uh, so uh, struggled to get out of high school, uh, but I did finish a little cheating and a lot of summer school. <laughs> and uh, I'm not proud of this, although it sounds, you know, I report it honestly now mm-hmm. because I'm not that kind of person anymore. I hope mm-hmm. that uh, I try to learn some integrity and uh, erase some of that. Uh, and pay pay back for what I did wrong, but uh, anyway, I went to Cleveland, Ohio, to look for work because there was this uh, promise of uh, gold at the end of the rainbow mm-hmm. up there. You just get a job in a factory and 
hundred dollars a week, and uh, God, my mother didn't make a hundred dollars a month. Right. And um, and so, boy, I went up there wide open, and the whole thing flopped. Uh, I've written a book, and it's a count of that in there how it turned out. Mm-hmm. But I ended up at RPI, which Rich Professional Institute, which was uh, half of what became VCU. Right. And there, uh, uh, oh, my my experience in in uh, I counted class exper- uh, class discrimination mm-hmm. uh, to to recognize it as class discrimination in in uh, and regional discrimination in Cleveland. Uh, they didn't want to hire white Southerners mm-hmm. or black Southerners for that matter, and so I learned that. Uh, it was a hard lesson to learn because I didn't know why they would, like most blacks, didn't know why they would treat it the way they were. Right. Uh, it was they, somebody had to inform them what was going on in the system before they would understand, and they'd take it personally. Mm-hmm. And that's where the hurt began to build up in the black community. So uh, it was such desperation, mm-hmm. and uh, so then in class discrimination can work the same way. Uh, and although you can pass as as a middle class person sometimes if you just have the right color skin, sure. And uh, so uh, I would I was uh, I learned my first I experienced my own personal thing, and it must have seeded me right with the idea that hey, not everything's perfect in this world, sure. And, and you know, I'm not getting the true story here. Well, and it's what we were saying, that you can make yourself believe whatever you want as long as it benefits you. Yeah. And when you find yourself on the other end of that... There you go. Suddenly, hey, wait, this isn't that just at all, is it? No, no. Um, but and, you, and not only that, you find out, oh, it's happening to lots of people. Right. i got brothers, brothers who are victims of hate. Mm-hmm. Sure. And sisters. And... Even sisters get it more ways than one. Right. Um, and this, you, you end up at R- RPI, um, and... A lot of that goes a lot, and especially a lot of your growth seems to come out of basketball, which you know you're yeah. playing a lot of basketball in high school, which seems sounds like it was part of why you didn't do so well in school. <laughs> uh, um, well, I, no, I didn't do so well in school because I couldn't read very well. Okay, and uh, it helps. And I wasn't interested. There was mm-hmm. no. Uh, it was all rote and uh, you know kind of things, and and it, and the teachers were uh, very class oriented. Mm-hmm. I don't mean uh, class as in course, right? But I mean social class, right? And they they uh, labeled you right away. They look at your clothes and look at your uh, mother, your family situation. And since I was had a single mother, and uh, my clothes were all hand me downs, and I wore odd things. Like one of the things that were handed down to me was was a, was, was a uh, some riding pants, you know, with balloons on the... I don't know okay, if you've yeah, ever seen right. them. They ballooned out at the at Like the a jockey. Mm-hmm. Like a yeah. jockey, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was, and I had to wear those for good occasions because they were the best pants I had. Mm-hmm. So once, once we went on a school trip to Williamsburg, okay. and uh, the teacher asked me, why, why do you have those funny-looking pants on? Because <laughs> the other kids would... Uh, laughing at me all the time, mm-hmm. and so uh, and the teacher fed right into what the kids were saying. 
Right. And so it was a kind of the class thing. And I began to recognize that, hey, this is a system. Yeah. It, it, I, I didn't have it all put together. You know, I wasn't a sociologist at the time. Sure, right, but right. But God damn it, I got... <laughs> but I became a sociologist, and I found out, and my favorite chapter <laughs> and study was social stratification. Right. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I did a dissertation uh, on social stratification and disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, did all the literature that uh, in epidemiology and behavioral science and so forth in medicine that you could get to document that, so you could see how important it was. It lived right into my thirties, and I was now studying what I had been through. Sure, and and so RPI, we're getting there, um, and this is something that's always it was integrated. When you get that, uh, I, no, the undergrads was not integrated at all. Any there was, idea uh, when that happens? And MC, uh, uh, there were uh, some breakthroughs here and there. With uh, I can't I can't remember all the specifics, but mm-hmm. there was occasional student let in part time, like in school of social work. Maybe. Okay, uh, I don't remember the first date, but when I started, it was totally. Uh, even the School of Social Work was segregated, I believe. Okay. I mean, somebody's going to have to verify all of that. But by the time I was done, I think there there were a couple of blacks in graduates program. Okay. But uh, the school was not desegregated in any way. Neither was Medical College of Virginia, right. which I was ultimately to come back and work there. Sure. And but but in RPI at that point when you're going it's really just what is it just like this row of houses on Franklin I mean <laughs> yeah it, it was almost all we had all uh, while I just before I came there the state starved and, and in collaboration with uh, William and Mary mm-hmm. who was our parent they were the parent of what now is ODU. The is called uh, Norfolk Division of Women Mary, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, we were beholden for budget for Women Mary, Rich Professional Institute of the College of Women Mary, Virginia Polytechnical Institute, cooperating was our name. Okay, it's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think it's on the whole thing is on my diploma. Okay. <laughs> this big, your name's this, this <laughs> just doesn't even fit. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Henry Hibbs signed it. Mm-hmm. At Hibbs Building. Right. Know? And I knew Henry Hibbs. In fact, I can imitate Henry Hibbs. Let's do it. Huh? Can you do it? Yeah, yeah. Well, he, every, uh, I'm sorry to get sidetracked here, but no, like I, I like told it. you in my email, you, you can go up these tributaries of, of life. Right. Cattle <laughs> <laughs> up there. And then, this is one. Well, I can't do uh, the whole thing because I can't remember what he said, but every once in a while we'd have a convocation in this new gym. The new gym was the first building ever built. He got the state finally to build us a building. I think it cost $200,000. Right. And the new gym was on the alley behind what they call the new gym now, which is now... The old gym, because we had a single center. Right, okay. <laughs> but that was the... the. So is it the one the, on Franklin? It, it was the back of Franklin. It was a gym okay. back of Franklin. It was... Uh, it, it became 
the last time I saw it, it was an indoor training place for baseball. Huh, okay. They had sod on the floor. Huh. And, and uh, batting cages and stuff. Right, okay. And uh, in front of it is, a, is the gym they used uh, next. Okay. And that's the one you, which had a swimming pool in it. And right. It, maybe new. Maybe it was there. Maybe you, you were there before the Seagull, or right when the Seagull. Yeah, yeah, I was there when the Seagull Center was built. But we actually, because um, I studied painting, so the painting studios yes. were actually upstairs yeah. in that building. Yeah. Uh, in, in, uh, the, in the gym that you entered on Franklin Street. Right. Well, uh, you could enter on Franklin Street, but it was the front yard. When okay. I, when when the old when the old new gym was there, right? But anyway, we con- that was the biggest place we had to congregate, except for uh, graduation. We had graduation in the mosque. Mm-hmm. Okay, the old word, old term for the mosque for the uh, current uh, cigarette factory of, of right. theater, the cigarette theater. theater. Mm-hmm. That's uh, right. Now. And, uh, and beer, they, they, huh? they make beer as well. Oh yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they cigarette and beer. So. <laughs> okay, well I knew it was a party. I knew it was a party place. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> anyway, uh, the we assembled there for a convocation for RPI, mm-hmm. and presumably all the day students. We had tons of night students and uh, and uh, and part time students and. It was a place for working working class, mm-hmm. and a few prosperous people who came to study art because it was the best one of the best places in the country to come to study art. Right, even then, mm-hmm. and it was notoriously. Uh, I mean, it had a wonderful reputation with the uh, Art Student League in New York. It had lots of links to New York. You mm-hmm. probably know the sure. history of it, and and uh, and uh, uh, what's her name. Uh, the so-called founder. She wasn't the Teresa only, Pollock. Teresa Pollock. Mm-hmm. She wasn't the only founder, by the way, I don't right. think. But she was an inspiration to so sure. many. And my first wife studied with her. Oh, excellent. And uh, was a painter. And uh, and then she's the mother of my three oldest daughters. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we would assemble in that Your first wife, not Teresa Pollock. No, right. Okay, so yeah. it's not. A, yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah, wasn't married. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, but we assemble in the so-called new gym, and, and mm-hmm. he would stand in the corner, uh, and he would uh, he would start every uh, start every meeting of the people in there. It's only a few hundred, mm-hmm. although the college had like. 2,000 students or something, mm-hmm. and a faculty of, you know, three or 400 or something, mm-hmm. and then tons of far, part-time. By the way, I took an art course, figure drawing. Oh, nice. And I had, I did, because I had some art experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some art talent. And um, he would stand up on that thing, and he'd say, <clears throat> in, his, in his, uh, his fashion, he would say, Thirty years ago, when RPI began, and then he'd go on to finish the story right. and, and link it to what he was going to talk about today. But he was so proud. Thirty years ago would have been nineteen seventeen sure. or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's and fantastic. So that's exactly the way he sounded. I like that. Um, and most people don't even know who. Henry Hibbs is. is right. You just well, go eat, eat and lunch and there. They and they know stuff. Johnson Hall, and they know mm-hmm. Henry. 
uh, uh, I don't Margaret, know who, jo- Margaret Johnson saved me. I don't even know who Margaret Johnson is. Now that, now she that was a dean of students, the first dean of students. Okay. And she was the one who rescued me and became right. and uh, I became very close to her. And she she wanted me to stay. She wanted me. To, uh, there were two of us that she really. I mean, as I matured, I became sort of a leader and a campus hot dog, and mm-hmm. co-captain of the basketball team and first winning team. Mm-hmm. that we ever had at VCU. We claim to start the tradition, but the difference between us as athletes and what we have today, I mean, uh, you might as well put a space suit on the ramp. Right. Sure. Because <laughs> they are fantastic. They, 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 we were not human. Uh, oh, they are not human now right, compared no, to us. And so and you guys had the first winning... First, so winning the team. first winning season, thirteen and nine. That's, uh, that's and we finished second in that little uh, league uh, we called the Little Eight. Mm-hmm. And it was called the Rams at that point. No, no, it was called the Green Devils. The Green Devils. Okay. Uh, it is distinct from the Blue Devils from Duke. Right. Okay. Fair enough. And, uh, and uh, yeah, we had a great, we had a very good team, and uh, we had we had uh, several Korean veterans. Okay. You know, military veterans. Mm-hmm. That was a characteristic of RPI in my time. There were veterans who brought some maturity mm-hmm. to the school, to the student classes, and they would, they had had an international experience. They'd been in Asia and so forth. Right. And uh, and so it, uh, the discussions in classes where that kind of discussion took place uh, had their. Uh, their their enlightenment, their partial enlightenment, the southern. It was all most everybody was a southerner, though. sure, usually local. And so that, but was the like, art students came from everywhere, right, all across the country, mm-hmm. and they were uh, remarkable. I mean, uh, and what it did would gave a a wonderful uh, flavor to everything else on campus, sure, and, and the, that continues. That's why. We're such a creative community. Right. It's because the business school, the school of medicine, school of dentistry, no doubt, reeks of the creativity that comes out of that art school. Sure. And I I went to, art, I was a phys ed major after being a drafting major. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I had to take figures drawing. Right. And uh, it was a delightful thing for me. It's new women, uh, you know. Doesn't hurt, right? 18 year old kid. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and no one's saying, look away. Saying, That's stare, right. Stare. I was rewarded for it. And yeah. I, I, I was a pretty good draftsman. And when I, when I say draftsman, I don't mean just with the sure. T-square. I mean as a, draw, a drawing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, I had some uh, I kept them and I lost them. I had some figures I drew going to Monroe Park and I drew pictures of the um, men playing checkers mm-hmm. in the little you know the little building in the center of the thing sure the little roundhouse on the, yeah they had they had tables up there on the roundabout mm-hmm. you might call it the veranda or whatever and the old men would play checkers up there and I sat out there and that was our assignment you know art mm-hmm. school you assignments are go do this go yeah. Go and, and get an image and come back here and I'll 
mm-hmm. tell you what you can do better. And so that's what I had, a wonderful teacher. And so uh, the art school lived inside me like it did nearly everybody. Sure. It affects everybody. And the, the Da Vinci thing and all the developments today of the school, uh, I read uh, all the stuff that comes through. Uh, it's just as brilliant. Uh, infusion into the and, life of the school, and so you so you graduate phys ed, then you go because um, you left Richmond for a while, right? And then you well, you I come back. I had to, uh, uh, you know, we had the draft in those days, mm-hmm. so I had to answer the draft. So uh, I had joined the Naval Reserve, yeah, in order to not be a grunt in the army. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I was able to go into no- Navy and be a grunt. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> I like that. No, I, I actually got a nice assignment because uh, it, uh, they saw my basketball credentials and they made me the assistant playing coach of the Great Lakes Naval Training Center. Fantastic. And uh, so I got out of a lot of duty for mm-hmm. a year uh, playing on that team and being assistant coach. And I got to play against black players for the first time. Right. And I uh, played against Casey Jones, who played for the Celtics mm-hmm. at one time, and uh, other people. Uh, it was a great, great run, and uh, had a lot of good uh, teammates. It was fun. But, uh, and we had blacks on our team for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was a great thing. But I was a hospital corpsman in a mental health uh, capacity, and I did actually did research. For uh, because I'd taken, you know, I'd taken courses at, uh, and I was one of the few college graduates there. Mm-hmm. And this unit drew college graduates because it was uh, it was sophisticated work that had to be done. I say sophisticated you know, with quotes around it. Uh, was more than just a guy who just um, came up from Alabama with no teeth and who was six, 17 years old and. Right and and was going to be uh, was going to scrape paint off the side of a destroyer. Sure, and so so we accu- they accumulated people like me at this unit because there was psychiatrists and psychologists there, and I worked for a psychologist. Did research, which uh, ended up uh, I, I did the grunt work for him. We weren't allowed to use computers, so did all his calculations and wrote these. Uh, had spreadsheets, 18 spreadsheets that were eight eight feet tall and four feet wide, hanging on the walls all around. Right. And, and I'd enter the data and uh, have have uh, recruits who were in our unit who were going to be kicked out of the Navy working for me. And uh, I invented a box that you could shake out McB cards that was equivalent of of uh, to get a count. It was, uh, you run a, I, I invented this box for the, the psychologist and, and put coat hangers through a punched out hole in a mm-hmm. card this big. McBee cards came commercially like this, but we invented a creep, a key card uh, so, so that could fit like giant. this, get more data on it. Yeah, okay. And so uh, I punched these things out and I had these recruits working and some were being kicked out of the Navy because... That this was a recruit training command. They were being kicked out of the Navy because they had a they had epilepsy, mm-hmm. and so every every once in a while we had to stop. And I had to go over and 
rescue a kid for keeping from hitting his head on a radiator mm-hmm. and uh, getting mm-hmm. a tongue depressor and uh, protect him till the seizure was over. Sure. So wow, I, I, that that's really that's really data maintenance. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, but so that, 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 uh, that questionnaire we created out of that factor analysis, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, it still can be seen through the screening instrument they use today in the U.S. Navy. Wow. So, so, uh, and, uh, so I, when people thank people for their service in the military, I have to remind them that I, I, I lived at the only time in American history in which peace broke out, <laughs> and so, but so my contribution was data, data process. Sure, and so, um, so then you come back to Richmond after the military. Uh, and, where did I go? And that's the uh, yeah, I came back to Richmond. Yeah, and we started the the ghost and the, mm-hmm. the what what Dale calls a. a, a First underground newspaper. Right, I and have to laugh because it's a mimeograph sheet legal size. Sure. And that's based on Dale Brownfield from previous episode, which anybody listening to this should go listen to that as well. Um, and uh, but you're already getting it at that point. That's really starting a lot of the activism. Yeah, and that, I, point, that, right? that was my uh, by this time. Oh, I, I left out between college and the military that summer. I was at the encampment for citizenship. Right, and the camp of citizenship was a uh, experience of uh, multicultural experience in which people uh, uh, had. It, it was expansion of your idea of what a citizen is, mm-hmm. and it was marvelous. Uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton was in my group. She's now a congressman from D.C. Mm-hmm. and uh, and we we were visited by Ralph Bunch. Who was at the UN? He was a uh, he won a Nobel Peace Prize. He's an American and uh, black American. And uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. We spent the day with Eleanor Roosevelt up at Hyde Park, and uh, I got to ask talk to her and ask her questions. And then uh, one day, uh, our director came in and said, "Well, we're going to have a guy you probably never heard of. This is 1957. Uh, you never heard of, but I tell you, you're going to hear much of him." Mm-hmm. And so Martin Luther King came in that afternoon. Right, we spent time with him. But I had written Martin Luther King before. Right, and he wrote me back. Yeah, and so I reminded him of this. And as, and as uh, nice as he was, surely he couldn't have remembered all the mail sure. he had. But but in '57, he did. He was not as well known. I mean, uh, a lot of people in our group had never heard of him. Right, and so uh, and so he. He came to our workshop too after he talked, and mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, my, his letter to me is in the VCU archive. And you got a pretty good sense of who who he was, or it was more yeah, of yeah, a business relationship. Yeah, it was, it was not too startling uh, different, but I was enamored of him because I already knew about him. Yeah, I, I had been uh, what I, I call a, a solo practitioner of civil rights mm-hmm. at RPI when I was a student. I I lashed out. There's stories in the book. There's a couple of stories in the book that tell what I did while I was at RPI as a student. Right. Uh, because uh, I was outraged by that time. I was growing into being a, uh, uh, a, a an enraged uh, person, and I felt I'd been lied to by 
the white community, my family and everybody else, and uh, I was determined to make it right. Sure. But I was totally alone because there was no connection between the black movement and people like me. Us white people who were opposed, white Southerners who were opposed to uh, segregation, were all, all were on our own. Right. And uh, that's what the encampment did for me. I, I discovered that I was there were other white Southerners there. Right. And uh, what I discovered was I was part of a world communion of justice seekers, mm-hmm. and that that would. Um, and that uh, that I should now I was never alone. I would never again be alone, even though I was uh, in what I call hand to hand combat. Right, and you get it seems like the um, some of the first real big uh, extra risky stuff is like the the Tallhammer sit in, right? Which yeah, which were, yeah, I went were, to the Tallhammer sit in. I was there in '60. The first the first one was on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Long story, it's uh, portrayed in the book right but uh, better, and also in another book called race trader there's a it's a the story uh, the actual words i wrote mm-hmm. uh, that afternoon when i got back from the sit-in they didn't they didn't arrest me they didn't arrest anybody that day right the ones they arrested in richmond was on monday when the students from virginia union came back mm-hmm. but i was a i worked as a welfare worker at the time and uh and see, and so what happened there? See, why why were there no arrests the first day? Well, uh, you may have heard of uh, uh, of the uh, concept uh, pushed by what's the name of that high school? They was the editor and the news leader in the twenties and thirties and forties. Oh, uh, Douglas Southall Freeman. Yeah, Douglas Southall Freeman pushed forward uh, the concept of the Virginia Way. Right. So any. Not only were we gentlemen, but we, when we uh, run counter to dem- democracy, we had our own way of dealing with things. Mm-hmm. And one of the tenets of, of the Virginia way was to never let anybody besmirch the reputation of, the, of Virginia. Mm-hmm. One of the ways when you had social dissonance was to never report it in a newspaper. Right. And never... Uh, and don't arrest anybody unless you absolutely have to. Okay. Because it gets the reporters to come in and report it. Right. And so they they started out on February, uh, was it 22? Uh, and think, it was February. Yeah. And they started out thinking, well, this is going to blow over. These students, they're going to get lose interest. They never have. And, and, the, and the white... Whites who were there were tormented, you know, and uh, there were whites on the same floor, right? We were all there together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've described it in my book. And, and you yeah. just happened to be there? No, we went there? down. The, the story's laid out. It's a long story, and it's sure. a lot of details that that make it come alive in, in my book, Scalloway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, uh, we went down. I went down. Three, four of us went down knowing something was going to happen. We knew okay. this was a big day in Richmond. But, and, and, and I guess my, my question, the, the part that I'm interested in is, you know, you're saying you feel isolated and you, you go out of the area and you feel like you suddenly you have a community. How did you get involved with 
knowing that these people were, you know, how did you know something was going to uh, happen? <laughs> that is a mystery to me in some way. Okay. But there were, we knew about Greensboro. Uh-huh. And we heard, uh, well, I was, uh, you know, I was linked to people because now I knew people around the country mm-hmm. from the encampment and things like that. And we, and uh, there'd be newspapers from elsewhere. Yeah. Like you read the New York Times, you'd see story of the Greensboro. Uh-huh. But you wouldn't see story of Greensboro and the Richmond Times disgrace or the news misleader, right? Uh, uh, and so you had a you had a background knowledge. This is coming up. This is coming up. This is coming up. And then I think I heard somewhere from somebody who knew that the kids they call them the kids the students actually were led by graduate students who were in a theology school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, somebody said the kids are marching downtown. They're trying to, and they had been going to the variety stores, mm-hmm. and they shut the place down. They they didn't arrest anybody all the way all the way down Broad Street, like from Fourth Street on up to Tallheim, mm-hmm. and they uh, so they shut shut the stores down rather than arrest people and there was no confrontation so there was no news right and that was the magic that they had now uh, in the following couple years I was part of teams who did we had 600 we found out we had 650 eateries around Metro Richmond mm-hmm. and we could determine uh, by this time I was hooked into black community and NAACP and Mm-hmm. Virginia Council on Human Relations and lots of things. And we decided that we were going to desegregate every damn one of them. Right. And so we went system. There was all kind of schemes that we would work at. Uh, some people behind the scheme would negotiate with, uh, there's a great story uh, about uh, about Happy Lee in, by the middle 60s. This was 64, I guess it was. Happy Lee and uh, Rupert Pikett both uh, were a great black-white team, and they went and negotiated with the uh, with the the Richmond V's, uh, the baseball team, mm-hmm. and they got they they got a plan for desegregating the ballpark over here. Parker Field. Parker Field. How about that? And and, and, and uh, they got that scheme. They also. When Do you know much restaurant about that? by restaurant? Let me finish this. Thing. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, finish. They went restaurant by restaurant and said, "Look, so and so, such and such restaurant is going to desegregate on such and such a date." Okay. How about you? Okay. Then they go to the next one, say the same thing. They went to thirty-five of them. Huh. And on one day, thirty-five restaurants out of the six hundred and fifty desegregated because of Rupert Pikett and Happy Lee. Wow. Now, that, that I don't know if that story made it into my book. I don't remember. I don't remember hearing that. But, but it's in my papers. And it, Happy Lee, I got Happy Lee to give his papers to the to VCU archives. So people who want to research that will know the miraculous thing. The other thing we they worked on uh, was to get uh, the first SCLC meeting at the John Marshall Hotel, which was uh, that's another one where those two guys. Uh, uh, save democracy for us, mm-hmm. and uh, I was a proud.
collaborator with them, I wrote an article with Pika mm-hmm. and uh, on Prince Edward. Right. We wrote the first article about Prince Edward uh, in '64, and it was my first publication. Huh. And and uh, and I worked. And, I did but, assignments. But, but who are these guys? Lee. Who are these guys? Like Happy Lee? I mean, Happy Lee was head of the. Uh, Virginia Council on Human Relations, which okay. was at its peak at that time. He came in about, I can't remember the actual, actual dates, but you can see it in the archives. Uh-huh. And Ray Bonus, who is our wonderful archivist sure. there, you pro- everybody in town who does history knows Ray Bonus. Right, and, and he's one of, I'd like to have him on the Oh my gosh, well. and he knows Richmond backward and forward architecture to race relations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's wonderful, and he's a good pal of mine. And uh, um, uh, but you're asking uh, who was Happy Lee and who was uh, Rupert yeah. Pikett. Rupert Pikett was head of the VTA, Virginia Teachers Association, which was the Black uh, Virginia Association for Black Teachers. Okay, and it was segregated in those days. Mm-hmm. A VEA, you couldn't be a member if you were black. Okay, and they had different agendas. Pikett was a marvelous he had a doctorate and he was a spiffy dresser I love that mm-hmm. he oh polished guy he, he was one of and he was uh, dark skin and he he was a wonderful man I loved working well for him he gave me a grant to help uh, document some things that needed to be in Prince Edward uh, so he was over there working uh, in lots of different arenas he went on to to be famous for uh, pushing black studies curriculum nationally. Okay. If you study how did we get to have black studies in colleges and so on, and in high schools and so on, mm-hmm. uh, you'll find uh, Rupert Pikett's name there. Uh, and Happy Lee was Heslick Lee. He was a white guy who grew up racist in North Georgia. Mm-hmm. He became a minister and then became interested in uh, race relations and was a entertaining southerner uh, you know how they are how we are uh, not I don't qualify as that entertaining but uh, but there are some sure and he was one of them and he would parlay that South Georgia that North Georgia uh, accent and everything else into negotiations of all sorts. He was head of the Virginia Council on Human Relations for, I think, about three years. Okay. And he oversaw lots of changes and was a marvelous... And his papers at VCU, uh, people can say thanks to Ed People. Right. I, I convinced him and his family to give him that. He's dead now. Pikett, I don't remember whether he's dead or not, but he's out of off the scene. I think he died too. But in what would make um, I'm thinking, you know, a small diner, or whatever, and it's pretty entrenched in Richmond, and suddenly this, you know, these two fellows yeah, walk that in. Small diner didn't uh, didn't survive. It quit. They, they closed. But I mean, what, they wouldn't they wouldn't serve blacks. But so yeah. They, so what? Why would these two guys walk in? And suddenly they're going to say, "Great, well, we'll desegregate because these two joke." I mean, no, no, they weren't the small diners. Way they were the big uh, Ewell's cafeteria on Fifth Street, and well, even uh, them, why did they care if these two? Uh, I mean, what what kind of leverage did well, they have? Well, they wanted money. They 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 they, 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 they had this 
argument. You will make money if you let blacks in. Got it. You will make money. You are going to double your patronage. Got I mean, it. Your, your consumers are going to pour into here because they this backed up money. They got money. Yeah. You know? And uh, so, now, not all of them, uh, you know, they may went to 100 and to get 35. Right. And they weren't little diners. They okay. Weren't, well, they weren't on the edge of the industry of eaters, okay. you know. Um, and, uh, I mean, I don't know all the details. Uh, for example, I don't think there's any record of all the restaurants they talk with. Sure. But I, but I, what I saw was their total, I think, uh, Happy Lee told me it was 35 of them. Oh, that's pretty that, amazing. That, that turned on one day. That's now, that's... Now, what that did was assure other people who who uh, would contemplate it that, hey, it's working over here. You know how industries imitate each other. Mm-hmm. If, if somebody's successful, then I'll do it myself. Right. And, uh, and so that's what, that's what they did. But lots of them were recalcitrant, and they just simply closed. Sure. So we lost about 200 restaurants, 300 restaurants, uh, eateries, I'd call them, because some were restaurants and some were little diners, sure. like in, like in over here in, uh, uh, in, um, oh, what's the name of this little, Scott's Edition. Yeah. There mm-hmm. were, there were diners of all sorts, and, uh, and that, those kind, some of those closed up. Right. And, uh, some of them, still, I don't believe a lot of it's still open. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, not some a whole, come, not some a whole lot of it's a little yeah. bit different. You know, it's we're a, talking about sixties, and by right. by the seven, by the late seventies, people were saying, "Oh my God, black patrons—they're not so—it's not so bad. They got money. Yeah, I could get some of that money. Why turn somebody away who's got some bucks all, in their all, pocket? All green, no matter how much. Yeah, what yeah, color they're green people. They're, they're green people. They're not black people. That's right. And so it, it so some of them saw the saw the light, saw the color green, and were. Uh, uh, and uh, on the road to Damascus, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I, I also wonder about, um, like, on that same topic, are there, um, were there places that held out seg- uh, integrating that became, like, where the segregationists would hang out? I often thought of, like, a clubhouse, you know, like, if this guy, you know... Like, were there places that you say, okay, these, you know, that's the racist bar over there? Yeah, you know what were, I'm saying. Were, like, yeah, okay, there like, were places. There's gay like, bars and drag bars. And here's yeah. the racist bar over uh-huh. here. You know, is that? <laughs> yeah, well, it was harder and harder to do because of the attraction of the fare they offered. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, here's the thing about the white South people have to understand: uh, the majority of uh, of people in the South were fair-minded. They were not virulent racists. Mm-hmm. What they would do is they were convenience racists. You know, they they uh, they conformed to segregation because they had to. Right. And it wasn't kind of thing. Well, I, I don't like black people. It's not that. It's look. I don't want to be hassled. I don't want to be. Uh, 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 to uh, go to nigger lover heaven, mm-hmm. uh, I mean hell, nigger lover hell, because that's where the, uh, the virulent whites 
They ruled us. Mm -hmm. They told us everything. There was always some uh, hothead racist looking over your shoulder for every one of your behaviors. Mm -hmm. That's what I experienced. But once you let loose of the uh, normalization, of the, you know, no longer is a norm, mm -hmm. uh, people were free, white people were freed up to behave like in a democracy a little sure. more. Not that they erased all, all uh, prejudiced attitudes or stereotypes or, and so on, but it was enough to have a civil society which was approximately democratic. Mm -hmm. And especially in, uh, in the uh, uh, civil areas like uh, public accommodations. Now, when it came to intimate things, a little bit different. It was slower on slips, uh, swimming pools, and, and uh, marriage, and things like that. Sure. Okay, that's where we're gonna we're gonna call it quits for right now. Uh, but check out the next episode; it'll be part two of this conversation. I'll be posting that on May first. Uh, if you don't know, if this is the first time you're checking the podcast out, it does come out on the first and the fifteenth of every month. Um, let me know what you think. Uh, iTunes, write a review; that would be nice. You could just click the little stars uh, or wherever you're listening to this. Uh, but you can also uh, email me. Jeff Major, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R, at historyreplaystoday.org. You know, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, at History Replays, on Instagram, wherever, Tumblr, wherever you follow, folks. And thank you very much, Ed Peoples. Thank you very much, Patricia, for uh, um, recommending me to talk to Ed. It was actually a really, it was a treat. Um, and check out Ed's book. Uh, again, it is called Scallywag, A White Southerner's Journey Through Segregation to Human Rights Activists. You can get that really anywhere books are sold. Um, you know, go to your local bookstore. That doesn't hurt. That's always best. And go get the book somewhere where he's speaking. Go check that out. Um, check his website, Ed Peoples, E-D-P-E-E-P-L-E-S. Dot com, and you can find out all his dates and deets wherever he's going to be. Um, also, if you have any information about uh, uh, Lady Wonder, the talking horse, make sure you send that to me. I, I'm, I really am interested. Uh, I think it's just the coolest thing. Uh, a talking horse. Come on. I know that there's a certain point to, I think he solved mysteries and all kinds of stuff. So, But as always, make it a great day.